0: Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to answer questions regarding perpetrators but before we jump into that content i want to remind you of peaceworks university peaceworks university is our online membership community and it contains a wealth of information if you are benefiting from what you're hearing on the peaceworks podcast then peaceworks university is your best next step we have monthly uh, live q and a's with our membership that are uh, recorded and placed in the membership site we have Video based resources that include success paths to help you in your counseling and care, and interviews with experts in the field of domestic abuse. So, again, if you are benefiting from what you're hearing on the Peaceworks podcast, Peaceworks University is your best next step. So, today we have a series of questions, um, and I really can't tell if they are from personal experience or curiosity, but I thought they were some interesting questions I wanted to bring to you, the the PeaceWorks podcast listener, about perpetrators, about abuser behavior, personalities, um, common elements, and I thought that would be a helpful discussion. So let's jump in to some questions regarding perpetrators. Number one, within the faith community, what percentage of domestic abuse cases would you say include perpetrators? who jump from church to church to avoid accountability? It's an interesting question, and I I first want to apologize and say I I wouldn't even know where to begin statistically uh, to address that. I don't know that there would be any way to really measure uh, statistically how often church accountability is met with that type of resistance, with fleeing to another church. But I do think that I can at least anecdotally experientially speak to the fact that when churches take serious uh, the concept of domestic abuse and they seriously address the abuser in particular, the the sin of committing acts of coercive control that that will be met with resistance and that resistance will often be, situational, based upon the, um, the the methods and means and motives of the abuser and the uh, level of accountability being issued by the church and perhaps the willingness of the church culture as a whole to participate in that accountability. So what, I, what I'd like to do is just kind of walk through some of the ways in which I've seen resistance and i do think the questioner is onto something i i don't know that i could even label a percentage of the cases that i've worked or been a part of but the question itself seems to come from some experience and i would say most of us who've worked church-based cases as advocates or interventionists or as team members or consultants have seen on too many occasions, the church begin to confront the abuse, that the initial responses of the abuser are are met um, head-on with boundaries and accountability and expectations, and that sometimes these individuals will then drift away. They will find themselves in another church and this happens fairly common. And a lot of times these other churches are like-minded because there there does seem to be, at least in our world of biblical counseling, there seems to be a high sense of personal justice among the population, abuse population and a high sense of theological correctness among a lot of the abusive individuals that we've worked with. So it's not uncommon to see an individual flee to a like-minded church. Now, what we have seen is those like-minded churches have relationships, and we've seen on a few occasions the initial church contact the new church, and the new church support the um, the initial church, and discipline continue and accountability continue. And I've seen some cases where abusers have fled to as many as three or four churches until they found one that would believe them or would collude with them now again this is all experiential i can't speak for everyone in this but i will say on the few occasions in which there has been these kind of dogged pursuits these kind of you know hound dog pursuits of accountability where churches have not simply you know washed their hands of an individual when he left their church, but they pursued him to another church, and that pursuit led that individual to flee to a third church or a fourth church even uh, on very, very few occasions. Uh, I have seen those type of pursuits end with kind of a um, a siege or a sanctuary moment where a the last church in the line uh, became the one who believed him who rallied the troops around him, who supported him. And and I I think it's important to share. I don't have reasons why this is. I have some speculation. But in those rare cases, those few cases, that church has always been ultra-conservative, legalistic, uh, more of a fundamentalist-type environment. And I think that's a warning to those of us in the conservative church that Uh, We just need to be aware of how safe your church may feel for an abuser. And we don't want to be a safe church for sin. We want to be a safe church for the vulnerable, uh, for those who are marginalized, who are exposed to wickedness, not those who commit wickedness. Uh, Other forms of resistance, though, that are pretty common are actually to, to stand pat to confront the pastor, the leaders, the team head on uh, with a kind of obstinence, believe it or not. You'll often see this among individuals who are church members, maybe prominent givers who will attack back, looking to build allies, uh, colluding with congregation members, uh, what in the work sometimes people will call you know flying monkeys, what Titus I believe would call being divisive, and beginning to build uh, alliances and coalitions to oppose the leadership. And uh, there is great risk. There, there just is. There, is. there is great risk to confronting abuses of power um, because those individuals do have some kind of power, maybe just over their family, but perhaps they do have influence in the community or even the community of faith. And confronting them could cost you. A ministry position. It could cost you uh, financially. It could cost you in the size of your congregation, and those are costs that we have to be willing to pay. Those are um, unfortunate realities and side effects of division, so we have to be prepared for that. I think we should be proactive in that, developing you know a healthy community before we engage with abusive behavior, but Understand that perpetrators resist, yes, by fleeing to other churches, but also through direct confrontation. I think another way is through subtle manipulation. Uh, we, We have seen individuals who are abusive who have not embraced repentance or transformation, but they have embraced the work, a willingness to work very hard on the hoops, the checklists, the obligations laid out before them by the counseling team. Uh, this often manifests itself in a conversation like this. I've done everything you guys have asked. I've done everything that's been assigned to me. I've done everything that you have wanted from me. Why can't we now do what I want? There becomes a negotiation uh, rather than a um, willingness to surrender to accountability, to pursue discipleship, to um, express real contrition and godly sorrow. But this continued worldly sorrow will manifest itself through hypercompliance. Well, Chris, how do you discern who's really changed and who's really not? Well, th- those are difficult conversations, but certainly an individual who's simply willing to complete tasks to get what they want is motivated by something very different than somebody who's willing to accept accountability because they understand their sin. That's what I love about um, in my friend Greg and Jeremy's book, When Home Hurts, there's a, a plea for individuals to see their sin the way God sees their sin. And I think that's indicative of what Jesus taught us when he when he taught us that blessed are those who mourn. And other aspects of, of the New Testament of seeing our sin for what it is uh, rather than Uh, just jumping through those hoops. So I appreciate the question. I do think it's not only possible but plausible that when the pressure is applied, that an abusive individual will flee a church setting and run from accountability, but they may also adamantly oppose accountability, try to manipulate uh, or undermine that accountability. And then, of course, there's those occasions where they respond to accountability which are amazing, and those are the those are the moments that some of us live for. Those are the moments where we get these glimmers of hope and, and reminders of God's great mercy and His great grace uh, to individuals. So I appreciate the question. I want to answer a, a second question, if I can. In the second question, we've got a whole uh, list of bullet points regarding. You know, curiosity of, of perpetrator behavior, and this one is, can you address when the abuser seeks sympathy from the church and outcasts the spouse, and especially in cases where the abuser is the pastor? Um, I don't know if this is a more common occurrence. I don't think it is. I think perhaps social media, um, the Internet, connectivity, has helped us see this. Um, and maybe celebrity pastor culture has contributed to this greatly. I, I do think we all owe kind of a debt of gratitude to those who have been exposing the the bully pastor, the celebrity pastor, um, the abusive pastor. So I think we're becoming more and more aware in the evangelical church of some of the dangers and trappings of pastoral ministry. It should not, Surprise us! Paul was warning Titus and Timothy of these very things, um, in his encouragement to raise up leaders who were sober-minded and temperate, who had the exemplary example of the Christ, the Christian life. You know, who were um, being held accountable to be you know God's type of people in that regard. In the same breath, pastors are human. I think there has been an unfortunate viewpoint of pastors that they are somehow a super saint and um, that they are the mouthpiece of God uh, rather than you know, seeing them as part of the body, uh, functioning in maybe a different role, a different office. Certainly we have layers of accountability that we're to be held to, but uh, we also need care. We also need confronting. We also need accountability. Um, We also need the love and grace and the mercy of God. So I I say all that to say it it should not surprise us when this happens, and I think we need to do a much better job in the future of recognizing the potential of abuse at the hands of pastoral, pastoral authority, pastoral position, and we need to be much swifter in our response to those abuses. And, um, you know, to the questioner's point, it sounds like this particular pastor is using the pulpit or his position to garner the sympathy of the church, uh, A, B, to ostracize his own spouse. Uh, and there's a devastating and detestable aspect to that, that the pulpit and the position of pastor would be used to ostracize your own spouse and to propagate your own narrative. And, and I think that is something that the church perhaps is becoming more aware of. I'm not saying that every church is going to suddenly awaken to the dangers of uh, the pulpit-based narrative, but I do think that many of us in evangelicalism are becoming aware uh, through just sheer volume exposure, especially in this topic of sexual abuse and and intimate partner violence, domestic violence, domestic abuse, where we have seen time and time again the whitewashed, veneer, faux calls for repentance that have been done on stage. Um, I think we've all mourned at the staged repentance and forgiveness of sexual abusers who have been platformed without the personal repentance and forgiveness toward one's victim, how the church has in many ways been deceived into granting recognition and acceptance and love, which is who we are, who we're supposed to be. We've been deceived into doing that prematurely because a pastor has paraded himself or perhaps someone else on a stage. Um, And called to church to that without properly articulating how repentance took place, whether or not forgiveness has been granted, um, and the consequences of sin, for that matter. And and many times it does seem that platformed repentance, quote unquote, is really about restoring someone to a ministry capacity as opposed to restoring them to Jesus Christ, which is a dangerous, right, a dangerous uh, practice. So I say all that to say I think the evangelical world is beginning to wake up to this. We saw recently an, in, uh, an attempt uh, at this at a local church in which the victim was present, and she offered a counter-argument uh, to the pastor's kind of glossy, uh, whitewashed version of events that um, led to the church's response, which was quite passionate. And I think we're going to see more of that and a necessity for— pastors in particular to represent cases of abuse destruction coercion control uh, with greater respect and responsibility now with that being said if this pastor is the uh, abuser or even if we want to use the language accused abuser then wisdom would say he should not be crafting the narrative in, in fact the 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 very fact, <laughs> that in the question there is this indication that the pastor has been abusive or accused of abuse, and now he's the primary voice creating the narrative, is actually a giant red flag to those of us who do the work. This is, is and should not be his responsibility. Elders, leaders, denominational leaders, other people should be involved in the establishing of care and confrontation, um, the individual should have some time away from the pulpit uh, and everyone should be addressed appropriately. The fact that the pastor himself, who is being accused of being abusive, is creating the narrative and ostracizing his wife in the process is actually supporting the accusation because it's it's the use of power, <laughs> to control and so it is incredibly unwise and indicative of the, the entire problem so I do think we need to do a much better job and I would be I would be um, ignorant and, and and quite frankly you know idiotic to say that abuse isn't happening from the pulpit um the pastoral office the corporate CEO in America, the political power—they are all um, rife with abuse, um, and there are realities to the American version of the pastoral office that have become increasingly dangerous, in large part because we have assigned so much value to charisma and character, and ability, and the. Pastoral ministry has become, in essence, a performing art uh, as opposed to a shepherding and care ministry, and I think it's to our great disservice, to be quite honest with you, and um, there, are, there are real benefits to going back to the Scripture, imagine that, and holding our pastors to the standard that Paul gave Timothy and Titus, people of character Uh, people who are temperate people who are not given to violence well chris they can't preach their way out of a paper bag well maybe they're not great in the pulpit they're supposed to be able to teach not able to entertain maybe we should really bear down on the important aspects of pastoral ministry that's just my two cents and i think this um celebrity aspect of pastoral ministry is problematic and dangerous, and I do think it is contributing to a great deal of, um, of what we're seeing in our culture and even what this questioner is alluding to. I want to thank you for listening to the PeaceWorks podcast. You are so valued. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in week after week. If you would do us a favor, would you rate, review, or subscribe, depending on what platform you're listening on, and just let that platform know how much you appreciate the PeaceWorks podcast. Thank you guys again for listening. Until next time, God bless.